Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. You know, many of our patients who wind up having sleep problems really don't know that they have a sleep disorder. It's important to use reliable testing protocols to ensure accurate diagnosis and to get patients appropriate treatment to improve their sleep quality and overall health. The AASM recently published updated protocols for administering the multiple sleep latency test and the maintenance of wakefulness test. With us today are two members of the task force that developed that guidance. Dr. Donna Arend is an experimental psychologist in the Department of Neurology at the Wright State University Boonshoft School of Medicine. And Dr. David Davila is director of the Sleep Center at Central Arkansas Veterans Healthcare System in Little Rock. Thank you both for joining us today. It's good to be here. So I thought we could start off with just a a brief discussion on the difference between measuring sleepiness versus alertness. Donna, how do you think about this? Well, sleepiness and alertness are not on a continuum. Um, Sleepiness can be increasing across the day, but people are relatively able to function fine as the sleepiness increases. So these are separate characteristics. And so they are measured differently. And they're also affected differently by internal and external factors. Um, For the MSLT, um, internal factors don't really play a strong role because people can't make themselves fall asleep. Mm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. On the other hand, for the MWT, um, people can engage in lots of behaviors um, and external factors that can help them stay awake, like being in a noisy room, turning up music, um, uh, being around people, engaging in social activities. So these are all things that are, are considered when we want to measure either sleepiness or alertness. And um, these are factors that have played into um, the protocols for the tests we're going to discuss. So why did the AASM decide to put out new guidance? Well, the AASM updates their guidelines when there's new information in the field or at a minimum every 10 years. And the 2005 MSLT paper had reached its 10-year mark in 2015 when our task force was formed. And David and I were both on the original 2005 task force as well as this one. So Donna, you said that the paper was out in 2005, right? Which means it sort of should have been revised 2015-ish, but this one came out in 2021. So why did it take so long? Well, the initial task force, um, we had a uh, one or two people um, drop out so that it was delayed because it was then reconstituted. And also, once we started um, working on the paper, it was supposed to be an evidence-based paper. However, when we did the systematic review, we didn't find mm. any studies that 
really met our criteria that we could we could use. So then we had to go back to the board and ask them if this could be a consensus paper. The, the board did agree that we could make it a consensus paper, and um, <clears throat> that was another restart for the paper. And then, you know, when you have monthly meetings um, amongst a group of six experts who are also working um, and, you know, and you're trying to examine and turn over every, every little stone. There was no topic. There was no word too trivial that we didn't discuss sometimes many, many times over the years. And on your monthly one hour call, when you're trying to get consensus on so many variables, it just takes time. And then of course, at the end, there's a lot of reviews and editorial comments that come back that we have to have to um, work on as as a group, and so it it did take more time than we had anticipated. But I think the end product is pretty good. You know, somebody once told me that if you have five scientists in a room, you have six opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me why the focus of this paper was. It was a lot more narrow compared to the original uh, original paper. Yes, it was. Um, well, the 2005 original paper had a really broad focus. It covered everything. It covered the history of the test, definitions, uh, the indications for the test, and it also included a systematic review and meta-analysis for normative data for both tests. Um, in contrast, the current paper focused only on protocols and procedures for the MSLT and MWT, which were also included in the 2005 paper, but this was going to be an update. Ah, that makes sense. So David, what were the goals then in updating the protocols and procedures? Right, well, I think many of us on the task force came in uh, feeling as though uh, there were different variations on the methods being used out there in the field and that uh, even within facilities, they were, there were variations uh, in methodologies being used. So we felt like uh, there were a lot of areas that we could tighten up and clarify and uh, uh, help improve consistency uh, between facilities. Uh, and then even to harmonize some of the methods uh, between the MSLT and the MWT where that was appropriate. So uh, there was a, a, a lot of targets uh, on our list for improving the protocols. I really love that you looked at everything in such detail. Like you mentioned, Donna, that there wasn't even a word that went by without significant scrutiny. Um, and so I imagine that given the time between the first paper and the, and the second paper, that there were a lot of challenges that arose. So, so what were some of the challenges you experienced when you tried to address these, these um, in this updated protocol? Well, there were uh, uh, several things I think that we realized from the beginning. And one was that uh, we needed to buff up, uh, if you will, the, uh, the patient preparation uh, part of it uh, to have uh, clinicians uh, really work on getting the patients uh, ready uh, uh, for these these tests, 
And then also on the other end, uh, we felt like there was a big need for uh, better documentation of what um, uh, kind of schedules the patients are on, medications and whatnot. And so uh, in between that, of course, there were a lot of protocol uh, specific changes that we, we came on. But uh, as far as controversies go, uh, the patient preparation uh, uh, section brought out a few right away. So one was uh, how much sleep should we require of uh, patients to be getting at home uh, before coming in for these tests and uh, and then on the PSG uh, if one is done uh, for the uh, of course with the MSLT but optionally with the with the MWT and um, during the time of our uh, discussions, of course, the ASM, SRS, and National Sleep Foundation came out with uh, sleep time recommendations of seven hours or more. And so we had to uh, think about that pretty hard uh, in terms of incorporating that into our new uh, protocol recommendations. And uh, it was, uh, there was a concern that certain patient groups might have a hard time reaching that uh, so we ended up uh, recommending seven hours of recording time, at least in the lab and at home, but uh, would accept uh, at least six hours of total sleep time uh, on the PSG. And you know, I, I really wondered about that when that came out, um, because I thought, I was like, well, you know what, how would I do after six hours of sleep? I might, I might hit a so ramp, <laughs> you know? And, and so I wondered how you reconcile that with, on one hand, right? We, all the experts are saying we need seven to nine hours, but then when we're doing the study, our patients don't get that seven to nine hours usually before their MSLT. Well, part of it was just making sure that they were giving themselves the opportunity to sleep at least seven hours, which was, you know, is an eye-opening uh, uh, finding for some patients and clinicians even. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it was good that we had that standard to think about and to try to attain. Um, but, you know, in the end, when it comes down to counting minutes of total sleep time, it, it can be a challenge. Um, so the, the next or related part to that that came up pretty quickly was, well, how do we, how do we measure this and what do we expect of the clinicians and, and, and the patients to do? Uh, and that's when we had this discussion about di uh, sleep diaries, which we now call them as opposed to logs because they're a little bit more expansive, and uh, using actigraphy. And uh, we... Uh, you know, had considered the one-week duration, but uh, many on the on the task force felt like two weeks was needed because of all the circadian uh, changes through weekends and a lot of our patients. So um, we ended up uh, really highly recommending two weeks of, law, of diaries at least, and then actigraphy if available. So that was... Um, uh, a little bit of an expansion over the prior guidelines. And then just as another related part of that, we you know, were starting to recognize uh, in the preparation, you know, people being on breathing treatments of various sorts, and we knew that you could get uh, 
time uh, in bed or time on machine from the PAP machines downloads. And uh, we thought that was an important thing to gather mm -hmm. to uh, help look at um, uh, patients' sleep schedules prior to testing. So I love that. I love that you're considering um, and more formalizing looking at that download uh, to obtain that information. And can I add something to what David said? I, yes. I agree with everything he said. But in terms of the seven to nine hours of recommended sleep, um, that recommendation is for people who have normal sleep or can get normal sleep. True. And narcolepsy patients don't have normal sleep. Their sleep's often short, fragmented, and disrupted, and it's very difficult for them to get seven hours of sleep during the night. So um, we maintained the six-hour minimum sleep requirement, which was in the 2005 paper, I believe. Um, but this is a minimum, and we felt we needed to provide some guidance to help prevent sleep deprivation from really altering the results. So I think you have to remember these individuals being tested have a high probability of having narcolepsy, so we shouldn't be really concerned so much about the normal sleep requirement for normal sleepers. I, I, I just don't think that's the group you're dealing with in um, narcolepsy patients. And the other thing about the two-week sleep log, that, um, you know, I think that's important to, to uh, let everyone know. Um, we talked about this um, probably monthly for the last two years <laughs> in our calls. Um, and it, you know, we, we looked at every aspect of this and any of us could discuss the, you know, the advantages of one versus the other. But, you know, I think we went with the two weeks because, um, first of all, you do get two weekends in there, as we said, and that's when you get a lot of variability. But also, you know, with the pandemic, people have gotten into hybrid models of, of work schedules. So one week may, may not be the same as the next week. There's quite a, there can be oh. quite a bit of variability there as well. So we really felt two weeks was really um, a better estimate. That's a really good point. So David, tell me what were the specific procedural or technical changes that were made in this iteration? Well, as I said earlier, uh, the patient prep for getting logs and getting actigraphy prior to uh, uh, testing uh, was emphasized more uh, and uh, meeting those minimums we just discussed. And uh, then also ensuring that any patients with disordered breathing were uh, adequately treated for long enough and so all of those were included in the discussion and the boxes uh, for the protocols. Uh, we reiterated the business about no split nights uh, before mm. MSLT, uh, getting back to the patients being on a stable, you know, treatment pattern for weeks prior. And, uh, or, or non-PAP treatments, dental devices, for instance, or uh, even maybe with the new PACER. Uh, then uh, the other uh, thing that we uh, discussed quite at length was medications and substances and being mindful of alerting and sedating uh, and REM, REM modulating meds and uh, trying to uh, 
stabilize those as much as possible, uh, wean some and abstain from others. Th those were emphasized, I think, a bit more. And uh, uh, we gave a, an example list in the paper of uh, certain common meds to be aware of. Uh, so th those were just some of the early changes. And we, and we did include some technical changes um, with adding the frontal leads for the EEG in both tests and stopping all activity or stimulating activity 30 minutes before each nap or uh, wake trial. Um, previously, some had been 15 minutes um, termination before the, the test and others were 30. And we just made them all 30 um, for consistency. And uh, we also specifically outlined the uh, use of uh, devices. Devices, yes. 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 Also, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the people's phones going off during your nap test. Um, so we did a, um, address that. And we also um, indicated that sitting up in a chair for the MWT rather than just sitting in bed was an option. Since uh, the survey we had done when we were um, reviewing uh, information indicated that some labs, or at least a few labs, were allowing people to sit up in a recliner chair to do the MWT. There, there are a few other things, uh, clarifications that we made uh, for the clinicians to remember to uh, note the REM latency on the PSG since it can be used uh, to adding up on the SOREMPs. And um, uh, for using PAP and other breathing treatments during the naps on MSLT, uh, I know that had been debated in the past. And then another technical area that we uh, clarified a bit was on the audiovisual monitoring. Uh, we uh, recommended that it be done all day, even between the naps, but the actual recording or saving of it, of course, would be up to the discretion of the facility or the clinician. Uh, and that's because interesting things can happen, of course, between naps. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I remember vividly uh, when I was a fellow uh, uh, recording, um, uh, not not only on the the VHS tape, which dates me, um, <laughs> uh, also on the paper PSG system, uh, recording a patient having cataplexy. And, uh, and so we actually were able to run the study between naps and, and capture someone with, you know, um, uh, absent EMG tone, uh, even though they were awake and, and oh, wow. collapsing there on tape. So uh, that was a little bit of a uh, clarification. And then finally, um, some things about drug screens. We pretty much came down the same area at the discretion of the uh, clinicians because we didn't want to uh, have to add to expense if it wasn't necessary. But uh, we did come across quite a few papers that had shown a surprising positivity rate um, on drug screens and uh, uh, think that uh, if possible it should be done, uh, especially in this era of um, medical marijuana and recreational marijuana approval and, and all others. So uh, those were uh, some things that we added. And then on the reporting, um, 
the, the documentation of uh, pa the patient's med use in the last 24 hours prior to testing, any changes they might have made in the past week, um, and uh, you know, noting if they had diarrhea with actigraphy, uh, all these things seem ordinary, but they're often not documented in outside reports. It makes it very difficult for someone reviewing someone's past history to, uh, to know. Do you know what I find fascinating? And, and when you say drug positivity, I'm assuming you mean cannabis. Among others, yeah. Among others. I, at, at APSS a few years ago, we heard a sleep researcher talk about the REM suppressant effects of cannabis. And so then, of course, you know, you start thinking about, well, wow, how does this impact our MSLT? Exactly. So it's, uh, and, and the, the problem with marijuana and cannabinoids and whatnot is it, mostly the THC is the, it's, it's a complicated topic, you know, whether patients mm -hmm. are doing it acutely, chronically, uh, whether it's stimulating or sedating, it's it's just all over the board at this point. We we really need uh, some more focused studies on that. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about using this guidance to conduct MSLT and MWT testing. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. A new AASM accreditation program is designed to improve sleep care access to patients at high risk for obstructive sleep apnea. The Specialty Practice Accreditation Program is available to cardiology practices that evaluate and test patients for OSA and collaborate with an AASM accredited sleep facility for treatment and management. Learn more about this initiative to reduce the number of people living with undiagnosed sleep apnea. Visit aasm.org accreditation today. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're chatting with Dr. Donna Arend and Dr. David Davila about recent updates to the AASM guidance for administering the MSLT and MWT. So Donna, this is something that I think in our lab, you know, this comes up at least maybe once a year because I think there's some confusion, right? So help me understand better this, this idea of when we determine sleep onset latency and when our technologists can wake the patient up? Well, sleep latency is always determined based on the start of the test to the first epoch of any stage of sleep. And that's true for both tests. However, the MSLT is terminated based on time, either after 15 minutes um, after the onset of sleep or after 20 minutes if no sleep occurs. The MWT um, is terminated after three consecutive epochs of stage one or one epoch of any stage of sleep. Now, it can be confusing when you talk about three consecutive epochs of stage one as the, only the termination time. That does not necessarily correlate exactly with sleep onset. The issue here is that when you're looking at an ongoing 15-minute right. um, scroll of a sleep study, it can be very difficult to pick out um, the first epoch of wake with just 16 seconds of sleep time. So um, if you would wake the person up after that 
after calling that first uh, uh, epic of stage one, that can be difficult to determine. And the sleep specialist may come along and look at that, that study and say, no, I don't think that was stage one yet. But yet you've now terminated the study, right. so you've lost that nap or that wake trial. Um, so in order to prevent that kind of thing from happening, um, the termination of the MWT is after at least three consecutive epochs of stage one or any other stage of sleep. So that pretty much guarantees that um, the sleep specialist will come along in a and agree somewhere in there that <laughs> stage one actually did occur, even if it occurred um, two minutes before or minutes before in another epic. At least you haven't lost that valuable data. That's that's really important. David, you were talking earlier about the medications in that table, and I really appreciated that you guys delineated, you know, you provided so much more detail about the medications and when to stop them. Um, and I bet that generated a lot of conversation. Yes, it did. And uh, it was uh, uh, something we had trouble uh, deciding. Uh, many uh, medications have different half-lives, and there weren't a lot of direct studies on medications uh, uh, clarifying you know, the magnitude of the changes you might expect in terms of sleep. Uh, initial sleep latency or REM REM pressure, and so um, we ended up sticking by the general uh, two-week um, washout um, for most meds, but others who have longer half-lives, even longer periods, should be considered. Um, but you know, we were faced with the reality of many patients not being able to get off their meds, their usual meds of such as antidepressants for that long a period and potentially getting into some serious mood uh, mm -hmm. situations. And so in, in the end, you know, we had to uh, give discretion to the clinicians working with the patients to come up with a, an acceptable um, uh, pharmacologic uh, pattern prior to testing and uh, knowing that, you know, if there, if results were not informative, if, um, you know, REMS were not present when expected, then retesting would be needed or perhaps, you know, alternative testing such as hypocretin levels. Right. So it's, it's still an ongoing uh, area of challenge. So Donna, you, you had outlined, both of you had outlined some of the changes. Do you think any of these changes in protocol increase the burden on either clinicians or patients? Well, um, I think there's only a slight increased burden on the patients, but it's not much. And that, and that is the result of increasing the length of sleep logs to two mm. weeks rather than one week. But that's really not a big burden. Um, and if actigraphy is used in addition, um, you can always fill in the blanks since clinicians rarely get complete data. Um, <laughs> so I think the biggest burden for the patient is the two weeks off medication. Mm -hmm. um, as David was talking about, um, but that hasn't changed. And um, the clinician always has the option of um, 
making sure the patient remains on the medication and at a stable dose and doing the test. Um, in terms of the sleep provider, that, that's a very interesting question because it really, the new paper should not have changed the burden on the provider mm. as everything we discussed should have already been being done all along um, and we were just providing more guidance. Um, I think, you know, things like emphasizing the need the needed sleep time in the weeks leading up to the test and, uh, you know, the, the patient's medications. Um, those issues, you know, we tried to provide some guidance, but as David said, we still left it up to the clinician to evaluate things on a case-by-case -case basis and then use that information when they're interpreting the test. So, Donna, I have a question, in, and this is something my patients ask me. So, in the real world, our patients do use caffeine, and they do walk around to wake up. So, why aren't these behaviors allowable on the MSLT or MWT? Well, you're right. These, these are behaviors we all use normally every day to improve our functioning, to decrease our sleepiness, or prop up our alertness. However, the MSLT and MWT are used to measure underlying sleepiness and alertness independent of external behaviors. So the test protocols try to minimize all these factors um, so we get a standard measurement to compare to control patients or control individuals under the exact same conditions. And we can control those conditions. Some things we can't, but many of the extraneous things we can. Um, however, if the tests are being used to evaluate the effectiveness, uh, effectiveness of treatment, then some things like caffeine or stimulants may be allowed. And additionally, the MWT can be um, more flexible when it's used to evaluate alertness under a patient's typical behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the clinician to decide what will be allowed, um, what, what the patient can do that day or leading up to that day in order to get a uh, reasonable or valid uh, view um, of their alertness on the MWT. So it sounds like you guys did a really good job on this update, but I know you probably have ideas for what else needs to be done, you know? So, so tell me about what is still needed. Is, will there be more talk about wearables, for example? Yes, I, I, uh, we, again, uh, similar to the uh, sleep time recommendations that popped up during our, our, uh, tour of duty uh, on this task force, uh, the whole wearable scene kind of exploded. And uh, uh, we were very interested, of course, uh, in, in whether these were going to be usable or allowable. And um, uh, because of the you know shortcomings of actigraphy and difficulties getting it. And uh, uh, we're still hopeful that uh, sleep clinicians will be able to uh, be knowledgeable, knowledgeable about it in their patients and uh, maybe be able to leverage on some of this more longitudinal data than just two weeks of, of logs and actigraphy to uh, better understand their patient sleep patterns prior to, uh, to testing. 
It's been really under, uh, interesting for me. You know, we have a couple of active watches in my clinic and I'll often compare the actigraphy data to their wearable data. And and so it's just been kind of interesting to me with this very, you know, small N <laughs> to see how well they, you know, kind of sort of correlate in terms of, of helping me understand whether they are chronically sleep deprived or not, or the circadian rhythm um, concerns. So final thoughts, Donna, I'll let you go first. Well, um, I, I'd like to say that, you know, if in terms of the MSLT and MWT, we, we should look at age-specific diagnostic criteria for the MSLT and larger uh, normative data studies for the MWT um, and for potential use in evaluating um, an individual's uh, risk um, or in safety-sensitive positions. Um, and obviously we need less expensive and time-consuming tests for both daytime sleepiness and alertness. And ideally, I think it would be nice if we had biomarkers mm -hmm. for sleepiness. I mean, we have hypocretin for narcolepsy with cataplexy, but that's a very invasive test. Right. So, um, you know, looking at other, other options would be so valuable to... Um, help everyone. Mm -hmm. And if something was uh, developed that could be used in the field, that would be ideal. Like a sleep breathalyzer. That would be amazing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> David, how about you? Final thoughts? Yeah. And I would just echo that. Uh, I found the, the shift work situation rather frustrating uh, because we're still uh, testing people, you know, during the day with the MSLT and many of them, of course, are night shift workers or they may be rotating workers. And so it's, it, uh, we found a few papers of trying to test people during their actual work shift times, but uh, I think there needs to be more work done in that area as far as how to employ the MSLT, the timing of it and whatnot, and the MWT. And um, of course, anything simpler would be, would be welcome. No, you're right, because sometimes you're faced with that conundrum, right, with a night shift worker who maintains that night shift on days off and then, you know, trying to really understand, well, can I do an MSLT at night? <laughs> you know, what does this look like? Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? Well, one of the proudest MSLTs that I think I've done was was a, a night shift worker uh, in eastern Arkansas and uh, had her... Uh, uh, do her night shift for a couple of weeks, then go on to days uh, as her mm. thing, uh, her plan was, uh, her usual schedule, and to sleep at night at home and then come in for daytime testing, you know, PSG and daytime testing with us. And she was profoundly sleepy, uh, even being on sleeping at night at home, you know, for the week or two prior, just from the long-term effects of that shift work. Uh, so we were lucky. We were able to document, uh, I think, a three-minute uh, mean sleep latency during the day. Uh, oh my gosh! Thankfully, no REMs. But uh, <laughs> she she uh, fortunately showed out. But uh, you know, it makes you wonder if they're that sleepy during the day. You know, how sleepy could they be on the night shift? Honestly. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk to us and to explain these updates to us. Hopefully the protocols will help standardize testing and reporting to further increase the value of MSLT and MWT results. 
Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.